Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, January the 13th, 2021. This is episode 2804, and it's going to be called Building Stability Through Abundance. And we're talking about communities here. Today's show was actually supposed to be about something totally different. It was actually cryptocurrency related, and my pre-show conversation with the guest, I'll just say, to be nice, I did not turn out that that person needed to be on our show. Not today, anyway. So that left me with no show and having to put something together. And I was like, you know, I just watched this video that's going to be our quote of the day that I'll tell you about after I bring our guest on, because we still have a guest. It happened. I'll tell you how to say it. I watched this video yesterday. Actually, this morning, by Brad Lang. It was not by Brad Lancaster. It was about Brad Lancaster and the story of Brad Lancaster. Brad Lancaster is a permaculturist, and he has made his whole world on water harvesting. Now, he is from Tucson, Arizona, where they get about 11 inches of rain a year. That is desert in, desert out, man. That is all desert. And uh, what he did with his neighborhood in Tucson. I've known about this for a long time, but this was kind of an, an old documentary, but it was new to me. Where it was, I didn't know how much. And I watched the whole thing. It's about an hour. I watched it this morning while I had my morning coffee, while my wife went to get her grandkids, so it was all peaceful and quiet, and just me and the dog on the couch watching this video. And I'm like, I need to do a show on this. And I thought maybe either tomorrow or next week I would do a standalone show talking about this. But I really didn't have time to fully process it. So I jumped on to our Goose channel, um, and said, hey, you know, just seeing who's around. And Xavier was around, and I said, hey, you want to do this with me? And he said, yeah, I can make an hour to do it with you. So we, we decided to do this today. So I'll bring Xavier Hawk on in just a bit, and we're going to talk about building stability in communities through abundance. We're going to talk about a lot of problems, but a lot of solutions, and a lot of different ideas. And none of these are things like, go do this one thing, right? These are all like, here's stuff that we could be thinking about, and maybe you can mishmash pieces together. Uh, just a lot of you know, two guys thinking about how do we change the world in real meaningful ways instead of like trying to force change on people through politics and things like that. Before I bring Xavier on, let's go ahead and uh, let you guys know about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today is RidgeWallet.com. RidgeWallet is just an awesome, awesome company to work with. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed having them as a sponsor and I really love their product. This is a product I keep in my pocket, and I carry it with me daily. It's part of my EDC. It protects me from identity theft because everything has these chips in it now. And there's literally like $8 parts that you can buy on eBay, and you can make a wand and go out and like start wanting people's you know, purses and, and asses and, and, and steal their information off their credit cards. This is a real thing. You can look up how it's done. Well, if it's encased in a Ridge Wallet, it ain't going to happen. And so it's just a safer, more secure way to carry your, your, your credit cards and your debit cards and stuff like that, your identity, all that stuff. But it's also just a minimalist way to do so. It's just so much more convenient. Um, I'll tell you, I think it'll be like me. You might be a little skeptical, but if you give it a try and you start using it, you'll be like, you know, this is just a better way to do things. And we even wrote a song about that concept, right? Uh, next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Very easy company for me to endorse. When you've been a customer of a company for more than two decades and they say, hey, will you endorse us? It's easy to do. I started reading, uh, reading Backwoods Home Magazine 
1993. That's how old I am. 1900. I remember when I was a little kid, there were some people that still around from that were born in the 1800. I was born in 1898, you know, something like that. Like, that's how I am. Like, back in 1900. <laughs> anyway, so 1993, uh, I, uh, I started reading Backwoods Home Magazine after I got out of the Army. And uh, it was... Uh, It was really an amazing publication back then, and it still is today. It's only gotten better over time, and I'm still a subscriber. That should be all I need to tell you about why you might want to consider uh, making Backwoods Home Magazine part of your home library. Learn more at BackwoodsHome.com. With that, let's go ahead and get into this, and I want to again thank him for coming on at last-minute notice. Our special guest today, Xavier Hawk. Hey, Xavier. Welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks, Jack. Great to be here again. I appreciate you being on. Um I had kind of a preempted show today where I had a guest to, to be nice publicly, just so he didn't fit. And uh, you agreed right. to get on with me today. We're going to be talking about building stability through abundance and building community where you are using permaculture principles and um, just other common sense principles of community. But what I wanted to lead off with was what started me thinking this way. I was basically going to do this show tomorrow if I didn't get preempted. And it's a video that I put out on my Odyssey channel today, an old video of Brad Lancaster and the work he's done in Tucson, Arizona. And the whole thing is like just anarcho-permaculture badassery, man. It's, it, I don't know if you've seen his work before, but he's just amazing. But he hit me with one quote. I'm sure I've heard him say, say before, but today it just hit me differently. And it was, right. before I plant a tree, I plant the rain. What do you what do you think of when you hear that? Before I plant a tree, I plant the rain. I plant the rain. Yeah, meaning I, that he I, like creates some sort of water harvesting concept, whether it's a swale, a, a, like the way he, I don't know if you've seen like how he cuts out the uh, the curbs of the street so it increases basins, and then the tree goes where the basin is. Like so, it's always that right. the, the rain is thought of before the tree, and then the tree comes. Yeah, that makes sense, right? You want to get the environment ready to be supportive of that growth, whatever that might be. Kind of like if you're building a network or anything like that, you want to you want to make sure that you've got all the veins coming to it that'll support its growth. That makes sense. See, and that's why I asked you to be on today because I knew you'd go there with it. Like if this is yes, when we're actually planting a tree, you know, a mesquite tree in the desert, we want to do this. But when it comes to community, like that's the same principle that we need to create the right environment before we start dragging people into it, because otherwise you just get a whole bunch of people running around arguing with each other. That's right. You know, like uh, I remember when we did an episode a while back and you were talking about, um, you know, a business for a community, you know, even if it's an, uh, an agricultural business and you specify like a niche market, you want to say, oh, we want to grow coffee in a place that coffee is usually not grown and supply it to a microbrew. That's setting up the rain, you know, in a, in a way for the economy of that community to be uh, successful off the get go. You know, and so where I wanted to go with today's show is when I looked at, and I don't know if you, because this was like last minute, I don't know if you got to see any of that video that I sent you the link to, but basically not. this, this dude, Brad Lancaster, he like he's, his whole world is built around, you know, water harvesting. That's, that's kind of his, his, his jam. Um, right. He moved into this community and it was kind of a, it wasn't like, you know, you, you take your life in your own hands by walking down the street, but there was crime. It was kind of dilapidated, worn out, 
you know, and it's in the Tucson desert, so it's just bleak all summer long. You just bake in the heat. And he started cutting out these, uh, the curbs and then building these basins and doing water harvesting. And like the whole neighborhood now is like covered in trees, plants, bushes. They're creating all of this abundance because they're creating food products. They're producing uh, medicinal yeah. products, et cetera. They're building an economy on it. I mean, they're literally like working as a community to harvest mesquite and make flour and then, you know, using it plus selling it. Uh, and he pointed out that something like the hourly ROI on harvesting the mesquite is something like 25 bucks an hour, which is a, wow. a pretty good little job, especially if it's kind of, you know, agorist in nature, which yeah, I'm yeah. sure it is, right? But what all of that made me think of watching all that abundance be created there and then hearing how it transformed the community and made it more stable is that the root of all conflict is scarcity. Right. Like that's where all, all the conflict in the world comes from scarcity. And that, I think we need to understand that because when people say, well, there's no scarcity of this, and yet we fight over it. Well, it's scarcity that is either actual scarcity, or artificial, artificial yeah. or perceived. Like somebody made it scarce. Like there's no scarcity of diamonds, right? Like the only reason a diamond's worth anything is because De Beers owns De Beers. all the, right? They own every diamond in the world almost. So right. they control the flow, right? Um, so that's an artificial scarcity. An actual scarcity is... If we want to do fusion, like helium-3 is pretty scarce on Earth. That's an actual scarcity. And then perceived mm -hmm. scarcity is, like, if people think something's scarce. Like toilet paper? Right. They'll, I was just saying, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right? Then they will they, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it will become right. scarce, right? There's no scarcity yeah. of water, but when there's a hurricane, next thing you know, a case of water is 48 bucks or something like that. Right, right. It made me think of Jeff Lawton's work, you know, regreening the deserts. Like, if he's doing that in Tucson, I'm pretty sure, or yeah, I'm, I'm fairly certain that he's probably familiar with Jeff's work in, in the Middle East. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and see, kind of, that's, that's where I was going with this, too. Like, so if you look at, like, what's something that Brad's doing, he goes into a place like Tucson and makes it more stable. But let's be honest, almost every place in the United States, for now... Though it's gotten less so, but most places in the United States have stability, right? And we have, we have stability in this country because we have a limit to our scarcity of the basic needs. And I know that a lot of people do without things in this country and they think when you say something like that, you're talking down to them or not understanding them. And I don't mean it that way. What I mean is like, if you compare the stability in the United States as far as your basic survival needs, food, water, shelter, energy, security, and health and sanitation to Kenya. Right. We, especially the Kenya out in the bush country. We are dramatically stable in the worst of all places. But when you right, watch right. like Jeff and his Greening the Desert and um, Neil Spackman and the work he's been doing in the Middle East and, and these, these permaculturists, uh, Bill Molson, when he was still around back in his – his prime going to all these third world areas. Mm -hmm. They're going into areas that are incredibly unstable. And their goal is, despite all of the pretty pictures of things growing, is to create stability. Right? That's, yeah. You have to create stability to have a permanent culture, right? You can't have instability and a permanent culture because people will kill each other. So they right. always do that though, how? By creating abundance of food and water and shelter. Like those are the the first place you go, food, water, shelter, minimize the need for energy, and then the people naturally provide some level of their own security as soon as they have something that, you know, seems like it's worth defending, 
and they realize their needs are coming from where they are instead of outside of themselves. Like if you live in a city and everything you get comes from outside the city, you don't have a tremendous amount of value for the people around you because they're just competitors for that resource. But if you're working together to produce that resource, then you value the people that help you and you value the location as well. And I think we've lost that. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I interviewed Jack Fresco a number of years ago on the Venus Project, right? And he was mm-hmm. like, a world without money. We have to have a resource-based economy and manage it properly so that we can have and get rid of uh, poverty because poverty is a form of violence. And so, you know, when you're talking about these permaculture principles of creating abundance, and, and we've talked about how to do that in a neighborhood, in a community, you know, you give your surplus to the neighbor and you show them how to create that themselves – you know, you end up creating real long-term stability without poverty and without violence, which is the ultimate goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the ultimate goal. And I, you know, I, I vacillate there when I hear people talk about like a cashless society, resource-based society, because yeah. with, without money, right? So this, I'm going to give the, 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 the counter argument and then, well, the devil's advocate argument for. So, so first of all, with a world without money, what are you going to have a computer decide how much Xavier gets? And what if it decides you don't get as much as you want or as much as you need, uh, depending on the situation? Like, how do you how do you distribute things in any kind of equitable way? Because some people honestly do more to provide for others and themselves than some some people do almost nothing. They're virtual slugs. My right. my own my my counter argument against myself there would be. Well, until about 10,000-ish years ago, there was no word in amongst human groups for money. There was trade, but no one had – like, we didn't get money until we went, hey, you know what? This, this, this hard grain-like thing that we can live on for gruel, if we plow this field and, and use slave labor and create a sur- storable surplus of it, and stick it over here. Now we can have grain and we can feed people. That starts out really like a good idea. And then it's mm-hmm. okay. Now we'll distribute it. Now this becomes the primary means by which society runs. Now we'll create a bill against the grain bill. And the origin of modern currency is grain bills, right? So right, like, cause you can't go carrying around barrels and barrels and barrels of grain to go get what you want done. But if you had a bill that said you had 12 bar- barrels of grain owed to you, then that, if you don't need those grain barrels, it becomes valuable, and if they know the pharaoh says or the king says that this is a good bill, then if I want something from you, like I need you to fix my cart, I can mm-hmm. trade that bill to you. And next next thing you know, the state figures this out, and boy, we got a whole new way to control people. Then we'll bring a little bit of refined metal into it with silver and gold. We'll create bills for those. And we have this whole monetary system, and it's like once you have that for a while, you just feel like, well, how could we ever do anything without it? But – until we did that, somehow we managed. So it does seem that we could eventually get to a point where we're not using money as we think of it. Right. Well, it really depends on the elevation of people's consciousness and minds, right? If, if like you and I, we, we could see that world, but it would have to be done really logically and, and very 
reasonably in the sense that the person who does more work would actually, you know, be able to get more reward for it. And the person who is a slug wouldn't. But like, how do you manage that? How, who's to say who's to create those rules and whatever? So it, it's a long way off before we get to a Star Trek society where the majority of the planet is all about exploration and, and you know, advancing the soul. We're still we're still like in monkey monkey land. Right. Everybody's worried about either artificial scarcity or real scarcity mm-hmm. in places like in Africa. You know, so we're far away from that. But and how do we walk that road without scaring people and say, oh, you know, like the AI is going to control everything. Like, how do we get to reason? And I think it it comes down to the the whole show topic is you create abundance, get get everybody to a point of like, ah, you know, just a big breath of relax. Like, I don't have to worry about these things. Then we can actually start thinking. Then we can actually start reasoning and, and do, you know, higher up on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And really figure out what's what and sort it out. But, you know, we are a far cry from that. But we have to take steps, in my opinion. Because if you think about it, like the, you mentioned Star Trek. And, boy, the uh, the communists love Star Trek, right? Because, like, <laughs> right, and, you know, Socialism! There's no money, everything. And the reality, though, is the creator of that, Gene Roddenberry, knew, and especially as the show developed from, like, a – in this, let's, let's just face it, like – as amusing as it was, the original Kirk and Spock in the 60s, they were basically mm-hmm. a reality place. They really weren't what the whole thing came in, became of, mm-hmm. of the concept you're talking of. That came in with, like, Next Generation in the 80s and DS9 and, you know, everything since then. That's to, right. To, to sell the idea that you could have this incredible society that did all these wonderful things without money and no one went without, they had to create a sci-fi reason that there <laughs> yeah. was a, you were a post-scarcity society, that there was literally no scarcity of any of the basic needs of humanity. You want food, we'll push a button, it'll be replicated, etc. Right. And I think if you can get there, you probably can do something like that. Of course, it would never look exactly like that, but it would be, you know, if we literally had a society where, oh, this guy needs food, boop, there's your food. And it was, like, not going to kill you. It wasn't some kind of protoplasm grown in a lab. Um, mm-hmm. And you, if you wanted a house, hey, you know, we got a replicator for that. How many kids you got? Two kids? Right. Uh, you look like you could use an extra room. So four-bedroom house. Dee, 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 boop, and just popped yep. up. Yeah, but we're not there. So we have to come up with some. Well, here's the argument against that. On You know, saying, me saying, like, hey, this would be a great thing. Here's the argument against that. So I met this fellow named John Perkins. He wrote uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman a long, oh, yeah. long time ago. Yeah. The IMF guy. Yeah. And he was like, you know what the single greatest, most devastating thing that happened to humanity? And I was like, no. What? You know, I'm curious. What? And he was like, um, easy access to power. Everybody all of a sudden got electricity. And okay. then what happened? We started destroying everything. People started replicating themselves more, you know, more people being born. Yeah. And uh, it created the most, the biggest boom in consumption and then also, you know, environmental degradation, let's say, and, and the eradication of resources. And I, it really threw me because I was like, you know, I never thought about it that way. But what happens when everybody gets access to everything? You know, you have a period of time, let's say, where they didn't have everything and then all of a sudden they do, they go apeshit. And, you know, Unless there's balance to that, and again, reason and logic and, and being able to trust metrics and science and the people who are giving you that science and those results, you know, there, there's so much at play. But it really does start with, hey, you know, let's let's create abundance in my personal life 
extend it to my family and then show others around. like what you've done with survival podcast. You know, you created this thing all on your own, built it all on your own. You happen to be really fucking, oh, excuse me. You happen to be really good at it. And, uh, you know, you, you started teaching others how to do it, not only how to grow and be prepared and have that confidence, but then also how to replicate what you were doing. I remember there was a time where you were doing, uh, I can't remember what it was, questions for Jack or something like that. Yeah. It was all about entrepreneurialism and how to replicate your specific podcasting system. And I think a lot of people, you know, used it and influenced the whole market. So that is, you know, when everybody's satisfied and has all what they need, you know, we should have a better world. Yeah, I mean, there are always those donkeys who, who will never be happy. But, you know, ultimately, in, in creating good systems that create abundance that we can teach others how to do, that kind of, you know, gets us a little bit closer to, to our goals of peace on earth. Agreed. You know, you mentioned power there and how that was a bad thing for society. And I think one of the ways it was bad is, yeah, we destroyed everything and we continue to destroy everything because we get our almost unlimited power. And when I say unlimited power, I mean the fact that you have 330 million people in the United States and everybody has, not everybody, but most of the people in the United States have some sort of domicile. And you right. walk in 24-7, 365, from the tip of Florida to, to the ends of Alaska where the grid ends, and you flip a switch and shit comes on. It just happens, right? Yeah, exactly. So my, my issue with that, when I look at the low-energy systems that, that permaculture develops using gravity, and, and we might use some electricity, but so much less of it, building reactive housing. So instead of having an air conditioned house, when it gets hot, the house cools itself. And when it gets mm -hmm. cold, the, the house warms itself. And that sounds crazy, but we not only can we do it, we did it for most of human history because right. you didn't have another option. And I think what happened was for all the innovation that came from having click and having power, right? For mm -hmm. all the innovation that came from that, because it enabled so much scientific research. I can't just crap on it. But it also made us right. incredibly, it made us incredibly fucking lazy. Soft. Like, like when we built a house, like, well, I'm not worried about creating a thermal battery underneath it to keep it warm in the winter. Why would right. I do that? I, I'll put well, a freaking HVAC system in and I'm good, right? You know? Well, also perceived scarcity. Now, now, you know, we have to use less building materials. It'd be less expensive and the, the, the cost then goes to the homeowner. And it's, so it, it, it all revolves around the scarcity idea and, and how do we combat that? Because we have housing that we found the remains of that for all intents and purposes is mostly intact. After being buried under sediment in a desert for thousands of years. Right. And I think any of us that live in a modern house, something built, you know, since the 1950s forward at least, if not further back, have right. no illusions that, you know, in, in a thousand years, any belief whatsoever that our house will still be here. Like we don't, we don't <laughs> right. think, it might be here for, for all intents and purposes forever for us as individuals, but we know that these houses we build today, they don't last forever. They don't last for hundreds of years. They last for maybe a hundred years. And then yeah. it becomes so expensive to repair them that it's no longer economically viable. It's, it makes more sense to demo it and start over. Maybe use the slab again. Maybe. But that also comes from uh, perceived scarcity and, and the issue of money, right? Agreed. Um, I was just on a fire on chat with some of our members and one of the ladies is a lawyer. And you know, she could be out there having her own firm, but then she said that she would have to work for the dollar. Like it wouldn't be about 
doing the right work. Like now she protects the people in her company from getting into trouble or, um, you know, they're very creative. And so they get ideas from everywhere. And she's like, you know, somebody needs to look out for them because they might pull an idea that might be in already somebody's IP and everything. So I look out for them and it's so fulfilling. I get paid well and whatever. But if I were, you know, out on my own, I would be I would be taking cases just because I needed the money. Right. Yeah. Imagine what would happen if you didn't have to chase it just because you needed the money. So she's fulfilling her soul's purpose, let's say, by doing good work, honorable work. And it's the same thing with building. It's like, well, we don't you know, we need the dollars. So, you know, perceive scarcity again. And, you know, so we're going to build less robust systems without long term uh, a viewpoint, let's say. And, yeah, that's why we have these temporary things. They come and go so quick. The houses are, are like matchsticks at this point. So, I mean, imagine the difference. Like, if we built housing today from a mindset of, I want this house to be something my great-grandson would live in. Right. It would cost more, but I actually would tell you it doesn't have to. That It's artificial. I don't know if it's artificial scarcity. It's artificial. It's, it's regulation that does that. Like, yeah, we can build housing, like... Here's an example, even though it wasn't a house. It was a, a greenhouse a dude built in uh, Bozeman, Montana. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like a subdivision built on an old farm that his dad owned the farm. And when he took it over, his dad had kind of gave up. He wanted to kind of bring back some of the farming. And one of the things he did build was huge, halfway in the ground, awesome greenhouse. And they finally said, like, in the middle of this video, like, well, what did this cost? He said, well, that's an interesting question. Right. And when I say greenhouse, dude, I'm talking like full size fucking trees up against the back wall in the greenhouse. Wow. Like, was it a wallapini or, or it's sort of, sort of, but not really, mm-hmm. right? It was more like the house was already there and they built it onto the house. It's similar to what the one you're thinking of where the guy did it in Nebraska, but it's it's much right. bigger and it's not quite to that level. But he they, he said, well, it cost me about one hundred fifty thousand dollars to build it. But the reason it cost me $150,000 to build it is since it was attached to a structure and in a subdivision, Bozeman City Council required me to build it to residential construction standards, whatever that means, right? Wow. And he said if I had, he said it could look pretty much the same, do everything the same, and since nobody lives in it, there's no reason for it to be built to residential building standards. Um, I could have done this for about $25,000. So you're looking at a five-fold increase in price to appease the this. edicts of our masters, right? And, like, so to me, right. as much as I want to talk today a little bit about how we can do this in communities that already exist, like, on some levels it seems like the further you get away from that, the more freedom you get. And, like, this guy's probably kind of a – dot the I and cross the T thing. Like, who mm-hmm. knows? Like, he's far enough outside of Bozeman City that he may have just built it and nothing would have ever come from it. But, you know, you have to be careful with that because, like, if you ever want to sell it, a lot of right. things you can build without worrying about code or whatever, and then when you go to sell it... They won't value it. They won't value it, yeah. They'll say yeah. it's... And in fact, they won't even allow the sale. Like, no lender will lend against it um, yeah. because they're like, well, it's not the code. Like, I had a uh, a house I bought. My inspector didn't catch it. And the nails that were holding the joist hangers for the second-story deck were not the right nails. Now, <laughs> the funny thing was 
the joist hangers, those metal joist hangers, mm -hmm. the guy that built that deck, he probably knew that. Those joist hangers didn't need to be there, right? They weren't actually what was holding the joists. He had the joists done properly because you don't need joist hangers to put joists in a deck. Everybody builds it without it. He did that because it was second story, and he did it on his own. So he put the joist hangers in to hold the joists in place while he attached them from the outside through the ledger board. Mm. So even though they didn't actually do anything, right? when I sold the house, I had to go through and pull all the nails out of the joist holder and replace them with, you know, an exterior grade nail or something. Cause like they could shear off. Well, they weren't actually bearing any weight. Like, so if they'll do that, imagine what they'll do if you build like a freaking right. earth ship in downtown, you know, San Francisco, like that'll never, that'll never go anywhere. Right. That's why it's good to have land outside of the cities. Yeah. Yeah. Unincorporated, no HOA. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that we'll see more of these communities develop, but I'm also hopeful that like, I think of the other opportunity is like cities that are not big and they're kind of done. Like they're just wiped out. They don't really have, they're, I mean, cause I think there's places like that where you have sort of pseudo neighborhoods now, mm -hmm. but the, the city government doesn't, bother people not because they're not willing to because they don't have the they don't have the resources to bother people like there's there's resource scarcity in many ways and sometimes it's like government resource scarcity like new york city is not a good place to do this but it's an example i heard from somebody today that basically said the entire new york city school system is imploding right now which shockingly somebody said that would happen last summer but anyway um he said his wife works for them and he's like as bad as you can see it If you have somebody on the inside, it's way, way worse. And they're starting to cancel all sorts of things that they used to do that were controlling, not because all of a sudden they became benevolent because they ain't got the money. And I think mm. a similar thing is happening because I've driven through large swaths of this country. And when you take, you know, not the interstate, you take like state highways and stuff, you'll find these towns and you'll yeah. look at them and you go, this used to really be something. You know what I'm talking yep. about? Like, there was one I found in, like, southern Arkansas, a part I had, you know, I don't know why anybody would drive through there other than, like, when we were coming back from Florida on vacation, we're like, let's take a different route and see. And there were these two huge lakes, and there were several towns along these lakes that you could tell, like, these lakes used to be big tourist draws that people would, like, right. come summer at or whatever. And it, whatever, whatever caused it, you know, I don't know, some other place that became more attractive, local problems, whatever, like, it died. And the downtown areas had like trees growing through store roofs and shit. And then, but there were like, there were still people living there and they were, you know, they still had kind of the layout of a, of a suburb, but you know, not a mm -hmm. suburb like Dallas, Texas, like a suburb like, you know, outside of the beltway around Dallas, like that, where they're more spread out. And they were decent. And I was just, you know, when I look at that, I think, When those houses go up for sale, they can't sell for anything like a house. Because there's nothing going on. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that stuff, they, right? They haven't been thinking of the rain. Right, yeah, exactly. So that house has to be cheap for what it is. If you took the same house and moved it to California, it's probably 750 grand. If you move it here where I live, it's probably 250. But there it's 60, 70 grand. And I, I look at places like that and go, You know, it would take some searching, but rather than just building a from scratch community, 
There's probably mm-hmm. places like that where if you got some investors together, you could find like six or eight houses that all have their land adjoining mm-hmm. and go in and buy the whole thing. Now you've got infrastructure, you yeah. know, usually you've got fencing, and you've got housing, and maybe it's not the best, but you're going to have good neighbors because you put this consortium together going in, mm-hmm. and you can fix it up. I've even heard of people doing things like this, and I don't necessarily advise the location, but God, I respect them, places like Detroit. Like, they go in and they right. buy these old houses that were built. You know, they're probably, to be fair, they're probably built better than we build them today because they were built around the turn of the last century. Um, row right. houses and stuff like that. And they go in and they get a whole group together and they buy, like, 12, 12 lots. And then they yeah. go, okay, we got 12 houses. And they go, well, let's pick the six shittiest houses. And they demolish them. And they harvest as much usable as they can from those six and use them as part of how they fix up the six that remain. That doubles the size of all the yards you know, mm-hmm. they take all the fencing and they create a perimeter fence around those, and then but they keep the. It's like one giant open backyard, and then those yeah, people start kind of building a, community. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's kind of like the Firon Hub idea. Is like go and find these properties that aren't being utilized, maybe in an area that doesn't have a vibrant rain collection system. In the in the analogy way of saying, yeah, you know, they don't have a vibrant economy, and then go bring in a mercantile business or a service business that the community can be focused around. You know, that's because that's how civilization grew. Like we would all grow this thing over here, they would all grow that thing over there, and that was sort of how the, the community was built. I mean, even to the 60s and 50s and 40s and you know into the turn of the century, it's like they would places would cities would be built around factories you know there'd be a mercantile yeah. uh, you know economic system so you go in and you find those places you you decide together okay this is what we're going to build and then this is what we're going to serve as a, as a community how we're going to serve the rest of the world that- yeah yeah and, but i think we also have to like if we're going to do this then we have to think about like what caused failures in the past and and try to avoid them you there man yeah, I don't know what happened. Yeah, you had a bad connection for a second. You faded. Anyway, what I was saying um, is I think that we have to learn from the mistakes of the past. Like, we've talked about these towns I was just talking about that kind of failed. So mm-hmm. here's another example. Also, Arkansas. I don't mean to beat up on Arkansas. I just lived there, so I drove through a lot of it. My friend mm-hmm. and I went and did Nicole Sauce's um, workshop about three years ago. And we were coming back home. We came through Memphis, and we were, like, halfway between Memphis and Little Rock. And there's a town. I don't remember what it's called. But the next anything is Little Rock. Like, so if you're going to stop, and we were both, like, eyes burning, tired, going to pass out, fall asleep on the road. So, like, we've got to find a hotel here. So we find this hotel, and we look around, and it's one of those towns. There was there was something here. This There was a, a significant. There was life. Right, yeah. There, and it's, it's dot. You can see, like, it's dead. There's still right. people here, but it's really dead. And But it used to be something more. So we, you know, out of curiosity, once we got settled in and all and, 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 and had a bite to eat, let's see if we can find, a, a, you know, what's wrong. And we just drove around the immediate area, and we found this, like, group of warehouses. I don't know what it used to be, but if it was one company, it was massive. It looked like maybe it was two or three manufacturing, shipping something facilities and it was acres and acres of empty parking lot and dilapidated old building. And right. you could just look at it right there and say, this is what died. So because right. they were built on a single thing, they were, you know, I don't know, maybe they built RVs, right? I, who the hell knows? Right. But whenever mm-hmm. that, that entity decided, 
we're not doing this anymore, or it would be cheaper to do this over here, since that was the key, it was like a keystone species in an ecosystem, right? The whole, right. you take it away and the whole ecosystem got disrupted and went into decline. So if we're going to do that, then we need to be doing this based on, you know, if you're producing food, fibers in medicine through things like what Lancaster's doing in um, Tucson, there is never a time when those things aren't marketable. Right. And if they're coming from living systems where you are, then if a company leaves, you're not taking the tree. Right. Right. But I'm not saying that, like, manufacturing and, and those types of industry are bad, but one way maybe we can have our cake and eat it too with that would be, so build the town, build the city, build the settlement to enable those entrepreneurial activities so that if one entrepreneur and his corporation leave, then you have more of a, like an infrastructure to do something else. Yeah, it's like resiliency, right? Yeah. You, you build a community so that it could subsist just on growing the food and the cattle or whatever livestock, right? It could just subsist. And then you build something on top of that. And if that's something on top of that, maybe it's a couple somethings. If those fail, at least you have somewhere to land, which is like, okay, we can take care of ourselves at least. We're not, you know, dead in the water. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it's the same with permaculture gardens. You don't just monoculture something and say, we're going to grow just corn. Yeah. You know, you put in all of these various things because, you know, one crop might do good that year. One crop might not. So resiliency and is like the basis for abundance. If you can, and you know this, and most of your listeners do too. It's like when you're an entrepreneur, let's say you don't focus on just one thing. You start spreading out and, you know, getting multiple streams of income in case one dries up. But then once you have that and you're settled, then it's like, okay, now I grow and now I can share and, and help others grow. And if you're sorted as an individual, then the whole system gets sorted because everybody can learn how to do the same. You know, and then the, the key becomes like, how do you give everybody a stake? And I know that's part of what you're working on in Firon because, and, and I think it's important that people understand what you and I are talking about is not some repackaged version of state of socialism, but no. a fundamental understanding that if you and I and 500 other people live in a settlement that within that settlement, call it a village, call it a borough. I don't care what the hell you call it. Call it a block of earth. I, I don't care. But that we should all have some stake beyond our backyard if we want that to thrive so that everybody feels like when the whole place does better, it's better for me. And when the whole place does worse, it's worse for me. And if, if anybody's doing worse, it's worse for all of us. In some mm -hmm. way, or at least we're in touch with the reality, like, Bill way over there can have it be worse for him. And for a time, it doesn't affect us, but an understanding of the interconnected nature that if you let it go, yep. it will be a cancer and it will yep. spread, right? So that we don't have to force people to help each other. That, like, I fundamentally believe that humans act in their self-interest. And I don't think you will ever – I don't care what kind of freaking – Bodhi tree, naval contemplating bullshit you do, <laughs> you will never change that because it's like saying you're going to change the fact that people grow, grow hair on their arms, right? You, unless you yeah. chemically alter a human being or radiate him, he's going to grow hair on his arms. So since that's the case, then instead of trying to fight that, you harness that in that if it's in my best interest to make sure that you're, you know, not perfect, but okay, then I'll probably do that. We have, yes, compassion uh, and empathy will take us so far, but we also, I think, the more we have a stake, 
the more we're like, shit, I don't want anything. Go-. Like, he lives on my street. Shit, I don't want him losing his house. Like, we all know it's bad. If you Correct. think about it, like, the worst thing that happened to a person that didn't lose their house during the, 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 the big bust, when I, you, me- you remember way back when I started TSP, it was 2008, right? Mm-hmm. Real estate crash. The worst thing that happened to so many people was that they lost their house. Three of their neighbors out of 20 lost their house, and it screwed everybody's property values. And even if they could service their property, if they decided they wanted to move, they, they could. They were stuck. They were yeah, stuck. We Some people are still more- stuck. Right. We would. Yeah, totally. We would feel it more poignantly in the past when we lived in tribes and communities, small ones. Right. Yeah. But as things grew, it, there's that buffer of like, OK, now I've, and, and most people don't even know their neighbors now. No. And so you don't have that that immediate, you know, visceral reaction or feeling when somebody's doing doing not so well. And it's only these large systemic things like the housing bubble in 2008 that really you know, affects everybody. So it, it, in terms of like governance and things like that, how do we build systems where, and, and I love John's idea with the freedom cells, groups of eight yeah. and people that, you know, cause you, you have immediate feedback on how the, the ecosystem or their lives are. Um, and, and we miss that, especially today when people are, you know, yelling at, at each other on Twitter, not me because <laughs> I'm not there anymore, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, it's like there's this disconnected uh, sense of of life that, and people, you know, way back in the past, people were a lot smarter, not necessarily as worldly, but a lot more intelligent in the sense that they were educated to be more self-reliant. And, you know, as the society has grown, it's A, become less close, you know, so you don't have that immediate feedback uh, of how the system's doing it because you're not really tied into any local system. You're yeah. tied into the whole big system and, and, you know, you're like, oh, those people over there are starving. No big deal. But it has serious repercussions for you. You just don't perceive it by the time it gets to you. You know, one of the most favorite quotes that I have by a permaculture is Jeff Lawton when he said all the world's problems can be solved in a garden. And yeah. I, I really think that people misunderstand that because they don't understand that it's a much larger thing than, oh, plant a garden and you'll be better. That's that. It's what gardens do. And it's, it's the, it's the cascade effect that they start to have. And one of the things that I've noticed in all these really successful projects, like I go back to what Brad Lancaster did in Tucson, or if you look at, I can't remember the name of the place, but the, uh, village homes in Southern California, right? Where they, they mm-hmm. did a permaculture neighborhood. What happens when you start planting things and you actually create abundance and you create shade and you create wind shelters and you create food, people go outside. Right? They go outside right. and then there's other people there. And when two people go to the same place, there's this weird thing that happens. Instead of saying, you're a libtard asshat, you know, on Twitter or Facebook, you say, hello. What right. is your name? Oh, I'm Tom. Oh, Tom, I'm Jack. Where do you live? I live over there. And all of a sudden you like, you, you freaking know each other. And then you yep. start forming relationships and your kids play together and you take your mask off and you know, you stop being mm-hmm. afraid of each other when you're outside and you start to build that larger sense of community because I think that's what's killing us. Like where I grew up, the reason you didn't screw off too much in town when you were a kid, somebody would see you. Right. They would know who you are or they'd yep. say, Hey, did you see what that shithead kid did? Who is he? They'd be like, Oh, that's. That's Biff's grandson. That's Jack, right? And they would, like, before you got home, 
in a town where everybody knew each other's phone number because you only had to remember the last four digits to know everybody's yeah. phone number in town, right? I mean, literally, like, when, when I was a kid and, like, you meet a girl in high school, like, what's your phone number? You'd be like, uh, 2980, right? Like, you just gave them the last – like, in that situation, when you got home, they already knew what you did. Right. Right? So, like, that meant that everybody knew everybody. And now we live in places where, yeah, you're right, there could be 20 houses on a, on a suburban block. And if you're lucky, you know one other person by first name and actually know something. And so you might even know, like, well, they're the Thompsons. Well, that's because it's on their freaking mailbox, right? Mm-hmm. And his name, you and Bill say hello. But you don't know each other. We're, in America, we used to have, like, Philadelphia is a huge city. But you, there were all these little sub-communities and little neighborhoods. Right. And you knew everybody in your neighborhood. And, like, there was almost a tribalism in that and people looking out for each other. Like, I don't like you, but, hey, you're one of ours. So if this guy's giving you trouble, we're going to step in because, you know, it's it's that, like, team mentality of, like, when I played football in high school, like, if – um do you have when a guy you that's like your beta? On, you might, yeah, you might not even like him, but you'll you'll stick up for him because he's on your team. Yeah, because if somebody says to him like you were warming the bench last week or whatever, hey, I didn't see you at practice, asshole. Get out of here, right? Like mm-hmm. it's that mindset, and that was true everywhere. Like even where I grew up, it was small towns and all, but there were still little like you know we had kids that were from Marlin and kids that were from Pottsville proper, and people from down on Ray Street, whatever. We had our own little groups that we knew each other and we were tight, and then inevitably. In your group, you knew some people in some other groups, and other people knew people in other groups. And it's a lot like John Bush's freedom cells, right? That you had, mm-hmm. like, these cadres of groups. So, like, if you needed something from somebody that wasn't in your group, hey, I know a guy over in Marlin. And and I, that does still exist, but it is a fraction of what it was just, like, I feel like sometimes when we, you and I talk, like, like I'm old as shit. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm only 49 years old. Like, I, yeah. You know, I'm not that old. The 80s aren't that far back, but it feels like we've lost so much since then. And it, it killed the abundance, too. Like, where I grew up, like, we everybody had gardens, except people who were too old to garden anymore. And right. at the end of every gardening season, you took all the extra shit, like, your grandmother didn't want to, like, process, and you gave it to people who didn't garden anymore. Like, no one right. sold it. You just gave it away because how the hell are you going to sell zucchini and Silver Queen sweet corn? When every third yard is full of it, but you just look for the need and you just gave it. And like, so where we started out with this about, you know, not using money and what have you, that's an example of it happening right there. Like all of that stuff had value. The food had value. You see what I mean? Like, but we 100% but gave it away anyway, right? We've separated just the thing that we were just saying, like, you don't even know your neighbors. It's like. Everybody's become their own isolated units, and they might have people that they work with, but it's not a strong relationship. And so the vibrancy that comes from being in a community of having the intimacy with others where you feel recognized, seen, heard, and like you're contributing to something. We all have that need. And what we've lost, a lot of that is because of the, I I won't say overpopulation, but just the amount of people around spending time alone online. And it goes back to like, you know, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. It's like you have your, your fights with people because you, you know them so well and you feel comfortable in, in, in like just calling them out on their shit or whatever it is. But now we're doing that online without that, that fundamental trust. In the neighborhood, you could work out your stuff with, with, you know, your neighbor if you were having a difficult time. But now it just goes straight to 
you know, here's a person that I don't even know and I'm being a jerk to them because of my perceived threat of, of scarcity, whatever that might be, or a slight to my ego. And so building those communities, having that intimacy and that relationship, you don't, like you said, you don't even need money. You're, you're able to just, uh, you know, oh, you'll get me back, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But when we have this disconnectedness, you know, so I, I, like the, the challenge like that I'm looking at with Firon is like, how do you scale intimacy, the community and have people feel like they're part of something without it being like this gargantuan thing that that's disconnected and cold. Right. And, and I really love, again, like we keep bringing John up, but like he's really keyed in on something there. It's like you have your guild or your pocket or your gang or whatever that you have the ability to grow with and learn from. And then how do you scale that? Yeah. Yeah. Create that abundance and that trust at the fundamental goodness of human nature. Because you're not putting aside technology. You're using technology to recreate the past in that you find people and then you actually do things in the real world. You don't only share pictures of your garden or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Like in Firearm, there is a way for us to like encourage that kind of behavior. It's like you can actually get rewards for it, you know? Yeah. And I think one of the problems we have when we get into – like I think it's great that people can get on a social media platform – and find a thousand other people that care about gardening when they can't find anybody in their backyard that cares about right. it. And they, they feel That's they're not good. alone. That's good. The problem is we end up so much in techno, technological tribism. We, we really think that the vast majority of people think or are concerned about the things that we are. Like this recent shit that happened with like parlor getting uh, destroyed through what I would consider antitrust and freaking racketeering. And right. somebody should get strung up over it or at least have to pay a big bill over it. Um, but whether that happens or not, is it relevant to the fact that the majority of people in the world don't know or care? Right? They don't know. Like, I guarantee you, if I went to my son, that's about as close as you can get, you know, relationship-wise, and said, mm -hmm. hey, do you know what, what parlor is? He wouldn't even know, let alone what happened. But we'll get my op and we think, like, this is the only thing that matters right now, or Trump's going to get impeached, or whatever it is, and you don't realize that, like, the majority of people right around you don't give two shits about that, but they have something that they feel that way about. And back when it was, right. you know, kind of the neighborhood thing, like we were talking about earlier, you you remained aware of that because you talked to people that didn't give a shit about the thing you cared about, right? Like, you had something in common, but, like, so if you brought it up, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And you'd either explain it to them and they'd care, or you'd explain it to them and they'd say, so what? And then you right. went on with your life. You didn't say, you're a libtard, right? Like, because then your buddy would pop you in the mouth, right? You didn't, you didn't treat each other that way. And I think people were just so much more socially aware of how many things in their lives that they felt were really important that weren't. And now we're, we're like collectively as adults, we're like the kid that gets grounded and can't go to the dance at school and thinks their life is over because they're going to miss a junior high dance, right? We, we can look back at that and go, God, I remember when I was that dumb and innocent and really thought that mattered. But yep. now we're doing that same thing in, in the bigger world with, boy, this one thing is really, really important. And, and you know, maybe, maybe a quarter percent of the people in the world are even aware of it. But yet well, for us, it's our whole world. Problem. Here's a real problem. There's a whole generation of people that are coming now, like growing up, yeah. teens into their 20s, that never lived in a world without the Internet. You and I did. Yeah. We had neighborhoods. We had friends that we would hang out. That, like, they were our Internet. And whatever they knew is the access of information that we'd have. Otherwise, we'd go to the library or whatever. But we had to seek out knowledge. Now knowledge is being flooded into everybody's brains. And, like, young folks, 
you know, God bless them. Some of them don't know how to keep or maintain relationships because all they're used to is like the come and go of people on their social media platform, on their social uh, feed, whatever, you know, whoever their quote unquote friends are. And those are not significant, long bonded relationships. No. Those are fleeting. And so a lot of them, they don't have the ability or that empathy that we're talking about, how to know what's going on with our neighbor. And it, 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 that's, to me, a very dangerous thing. You know, and here's an example of, of, of that in a different way, but how it affects young people differently than older people that have more context. And my wife has been snapping her gasket this week about it, this mask hysteria, right? All these people in masks. Right. And, uh, and she goes out more than me. Like, I don't leave if I don't have to. So she sees it more, so it bothers her more. Right. But what really tripped her was she had lunch with my niece, our niece, I should say, and she's going to school down in uh, Texas Tech, or not Texas Tech, Texas A&M, and, but she had just recently gone to Florida with her boyfriend, and Florida has no restrictions right now, right? And Absolutely she was, none. she was telling my, my wife how weird it was that everybody was walking around without masks. And my wife, you know, just had to bite her tongue and explain nicely, but she wanted to flip her shit and say, listen kid, that's normal. This is weird. Right. But how quickly, in less than a year, Walking around with your face covered, like a modern face burka, you know, mm -hmm. separating you from your fellow man has become normal. And walking around the way humans have walked around for most of our existence is weird. And this is this is dangerous. And and that's why I feel like we need to start rebuilding at the community level because you ain't going to do this at the global level now. Because these kids, not yep. only have they dealt with the Internet their whole life and not had these strong interpersonal physical relationships – they're literally being programmed to be obedient cogs in the machine. And it's always been the case with the public education system. But when I look back again to the 80s, which I don't feel is that long ago, and the school system I grew up with, I can see pieces of it, but it's nothing like they're getting today and nothing like they've been getting for the last 20 years. So now 20 years of spitting out an entire, you know, how many million graduates every year. And many of those people are now in their 30s. And they actually have control over things. And they're actually right. setting agendas. And they, every year, more of us that know the traditional ways die because life is a terminal illness. And another so many million of those get spit out by that machine. And to me, the only way you're going to find it now, you have to build these examples we're talking about. So when somebody says it can't work, you're like, well, it works there, 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 it works there. It works there. Oh, by the way, let's look at your shit. Right. But you can't. You can't speak in theory to people who have been sold a theory that says if we just do this long enough, we're going to have utopia, right? Because right, they right. believe it religiously. Like part of domesticating humans is charismatic leadership and some sort of like spiritual quest, right? Mm -hmm. But that spiritual mm -hmm. quest doesn't actually have to be truly spiritual. It just has to be even pseudo-spiritual. So you don't want people to die, do you? Right. You want everybody to have health care, don't you? Because you're a good human. You want everybody to be well-fed. You want mm -hmm. everything to be equitable. This is the way. Ah. And if mm -hmm. you sell people on that, then, yes, they'll do horrible things in its name. Because if, if you, you and I are peaceful men, but we're mm -hmm. peaceful by choice. That's what makes us actually peaceful. If we actually have to fight a war, and we know that if we don't do this, our families won't survive, we'll do horrible things. Well, you can create that false crusade for people, and they'll allow others to do horrible things in their name. 
because it's for the greater good. And, and that's, it's very disturbing to me as I look at all this. I would agree. I think that it's a, it's a very scary, unstable scenario. And I think that the ultimate goal of it, for, for me, the way I've been looking at this is, cause you know, I was on the Trump train for a little bit. Yeah. And really, cause I was feeling the hopium. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> the reason why was because it's like, oh, we'll have a better world that way. But then I look at just, I mean, he has a great record in a lot of things, but if you, if, if you think about it, we, like I said this on baseline the other day, you want peace, but we're armed for war. We say peace through strength, but what have, have we really affected that in the world? Have we really gotten to a point where hunger, poverty, uh, and all this stuff is gone? Corruption's gone? Like, will we ever get there? Um, and, and it's, it, so I'm, I'm finding myself back in the middle where, where I've always been, um, because I want to see a world that is just. I want to see a world where people aren't uh, led astray for for ways of you know enslaving people even further. I, I believe in the dignity and spirit of the human spirit, um, and so how do you inspire that and educate at the same time so that people are like, that's actually what I want to do. It feels righter, you know, it feels better. Um, so, it, but there's always that jerk in the back of the room who's like, I fucking disagree, and will totally disagree with everything. And if yeah. they're charismatic enough or jerky enough, you know, they'll get a, a whole posse, and then next thing you know, you've got a fucking war. And like, we don't want that. We want peace. We want uh, deliberation. We want reason. And you know, I, it comes comes back to the topic of the show. It's like, well, you can get that when people don't have the scarcity, the perceived scarcity, or the artificial scarcity. Well, you know, if you think about. It's a lack of gratitude because you don't know the person who provided the thing Bingo. for you that government gave you. So if if you listen to a politician, they'll say something. My plan calls for only taxing the wealthy. If you pay less, if you earn less than $200,000 a year, you won't have your taxes go up. Usually that's a lie. But even if it was the truth, let me translate it. When we start stealing more money from you guys... We're only going to steal more money from people that have more money so that we can waste the money and let a little bit of it come back to the people that have less money, who we are also stealing from. That's the actual translation of that. And so, yeah. But you're okay with it. You know that. Intrinsically, we all know it's theft. Like People will argue that it's not, but when you challenge them, I find that as they try to explain it, they explain that they understand that it's theft, but it's necessary theft. But if I said... You know what, Xavier? You know that guy you really like down the road, Bill, who does all kinds of nice shit for you all the time? Yeah, I know him. Okay, we're going to go steal more of his shit and give some of it to you, and that'll justify the theft. You'd be like, no, no, fuck that. I'm going to be standing in front of Bill's house, right? and I'm not like you're going to steal Bill's shit. But when Bill is a billionaire who li – I shouldn't use Bill because there's a billionaire that I don't care what they do to name Bill – Frank, I don't know any bad right. Franks, right? So if Frank is a multimillionaire that lives three neighborhoods away you've never met, and they don't tell you his name's Frank, and they say they're going to steal from him, suddenly you're okay with it. And so to create stability in the area, you got to start out with you know everybody in your area because, you know, like when I was a kid one time, we, we broke down on the highway, and we're walking with like a, a freaking um, antifreeze can because that's what we had for a gas can. Right. And, we're, and we're walking, we had like a three-mile walk back to the car, because this was out in the middle of nowhere. And like car after car drives past us. This dude pulls over in like, a, it was like a New Yorker, some really nice car for the area at the time. Picks us up, gives us a ride, and says, and we're like, thank you. And he's like, go get your gas, I'll take you back up. And we're like, 
you know, man, we're, if you just take us to the highway, fine, because you're going to have to go way down and come back around the exit. He's like, no, no, I'll take care. So in all this, turns out his last, he's like, yeah, I'm so-and-so gears. And it would mean nothing to you, but to us, we're like, your ears perked up, because like the Gears Dairy is like one of the most successful companies in the area. He was right. like the freaking Gears guy. He's worth millions of dollars. But he was the one that stopped and picked up two kids. And this is like during my long-haired, you know, metalhead days, you know. <laughs> we look like two druggies that might... Metallica. Yeah, yeah. Like you literally probably wearing... I don't remember what, but it could have been a Metallica shirt and a jean jacket, you know, mm. and, and like freaking Timberland boots. And this guy stops, picks us up, has a conversation with us, waits for us, helps us. And, you know, at that point, it's very hard to say, well, he's rich and privileged. Because all you other sons of bitches drove right past us, and he stopped. And that's what happens when you start knowing people. You stop judging them based on, well, they have more than me. And you start, right. you start, you judge their level of commitment to your community versus. The only multimillionaires and billionaires that I know who have made it themselves, like hadn't had it inherited or whatever, yeah. such like grateful people. And I don't think that you can make a great deal of wealth for yourself in this world without being grateful and recognizing your talents and recognizing those who have helped you. And it tends to, and I, yeah, sure. There are some jerk, you know, multimillionaire billionaires who a might've inherited it and they've got their own problems or have, you know, kicked and fought and been really jerky to get that. But that's a, a small minority. You know, the majority of people are good, decent human beings. You're in the trouble on the side of the road. They'll help you. But it goes back to what you're saying with the, uh, you know, the disconnectedness that we have and the lack of empathy and gratitude that we have because we're intimately connected with these folks. So it's, it, it becomes, you know, a cold environment where you're on Twitter and you're saying shit you normally wouldn't simply because it's cold and, and detached. Well, and I think the billionaires out there that are the evil, the evil billionaire class, I can't think of one of them that I can't explain to you that how they actually got wealthy because of the state. If, if they weren't born into it, if they weren't a Rockefeller or something like Bill Gates, like this idea that like, well, he just found this operating system that he helped create and then they built some computers in his garage and it became bullshit. Like there is so much government behind Microsoft. Google right. is literally a, a U.S. government project, you right. know, built with a, with a Soviet dissident uh, as part of it. Like, all of these these corporations that are mega corporations were built largely off the backs of the states. When you talk about billionaires or millionaires, you know, and they built it themselves. I don't know any of them that are like that. And I don't know about you, but every person that I've ever had like a lunch or a dinner with that I would truly call wealthy, they either picked up the check, did it without me knowing, or we had an argument about who was going to pick up the check, right? Like right. the rich guy always reaches and picks up the check. Uh-huh. And to me, that's like, you know, generosity, because I'm sure you've also had dinners with people where like they, they, they act like they're going to pick up the check, but also they become T-Rex, you know, right. they got the little fingers and they can't, just yep. can't quite reach it, you know, but like every wealthy person I've ever done anything with always wants to, you know, pick up the tab or, or, or provide something in it. Cause I, they're generally so grateful that they're living that life. Yes. That they want to share it with others and help others feel grateful, you know? Yeah, it's it, I, I, I don't, the, the greedy rich. It's, it's most part of class warfare, and that goes back to separation, right? Because Correct. when you hear class warfare, you think rich and poor. Well, no, it's not rich. It's every freaking divide. It's yep. you know, teachers are heroes that don't wear capes, and it you know, like anything you can do to break off a segment and make them have some sort of perceived autonomy from everybody else. 
and then they either become the hero to be worshipped and emulated or the enemy. And then, right. then you can divide people. You can divide male and female, black and white, minority and majority, even though the minority outnumbers the majority now. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you just create all these different divisions, and then you have a people that are all at each other's throat. And if you're in charge, you know, you're, you're like uh, the, the guy from Rome. I can't remember his name now that said, you know, you can move the, the, the crowd so easily that, it, that a simple wave of the hand makes the uh, the agitations have a, a marvelous right. resemblance to the sea. Like you right. can just like it's like dropping a pebble and watching the waves go. It's so easy to control people. And that's because of the detachment. You know, like what you were saying about Frank, the neighborhood millionaire. And like, yeah. if, if you don't know him, you know, OK, no harm in having because you don't feel the repercussions. Yeah. Right. But. We do. We just don't pay attention to it, and, and we are so disconnected now that it, it, it's almost like unrelated. Like you don't see the causal relationship there. But the fact is, is that we are so interconnected, just like the web of life. And if, if like I'm feeling something, it, like I've noticed, this is a kind of odd thing, but I've noticed that if I go through an experience up or down emotionally, whatever, those around me will will mirror that. They'll they'll have it in their own way, like at a subtle level. Like we all feel what each other are feeling, but because we have uh, encapsulated ourselves in the in the moment to moment experience in our conscious mind. We don't necessarily pay attention to those things. And if we can take these systems that have been built that have helped divide us, you know, separate us, isolate us, essentially, we don't have that collective power, uh, that that power of spirit that we know we are part of something and somebody values us. Like the the greatest the greatest deficit I think that people feel is not being loved but having the ability to love someone, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that, that's the real gift. Like I, I don't need people to love me. I need to be able to, to demonstrate and show my love for others. And that's what makes me feel good as a person. And so, you know, the, these, these ways of encouraging, like, okay, let's all go outside and, and build a garden together, or let's, you know, focus on something other than ourselves that we're contributing. Um, you know, whether it be a, a cleanup project or building a garden or whatever, like get people together and do something fun. Do something that's fun that means something. Yeah, and I'll tell you one of the things I'm really excited about for you as you as you try to bring Firon online fully is the idea of being able to do this at like a company level and and have that ownership stake. Here's what that makes me think of it. I found this really weird, and it was something I never expected to, to find in this this uh, documentary. It was like something like the history of food or something like that. It was on History Channel or Discovery, and it was about Hershey's chocolate. And uh-huh. as odd as that is, when the Depression hit, whichever one of the you know original guys was behind it, they, everybody in the company said, you gotta lay people off. You gotta lay people off. Like, that's the only way to save the company. And he's like, no, fuck that. We're not doing that. No matter what we gotta do, nobody will lose their job. He kept everybody working in the middle of the depression. And it made the, and actually by doing other adjustments, it made the company incredibly successful. And then the employees are like, hey, we want more money. And it turned into a literal freaking war. Like they had to bring in private security. Like they they took they took over the factory and held it hostage. They had fights with the farmers that were providing the milk. I mean, it was a complete catastrophe. And he ended up like cracking down and like freaking you know just within the bounds of the law, you know, figuratively mm-hmm. slaughtering people. Like you know, screw you back. You have no idea what I did to keep right. you people employed. But that was the problem. They didn't know. 
they didn't understand. Like there was a, you have like kind of the billionaire class at the time. They're millionaires, but at the time, like a million dollars back then, that was like right. billions today, right? Like so, you have like the billionaire class, and even if they were good guys, even if they had the, like, you just didn't go cavorting, right? You, you know, right? Unless you were Henry Ford, you didn't walk your line. Right. You didn't go talk. They didn't know you, so they had no idea. And to me, like with what you're trying to do with Firon, with like kind of everybody that's part of an organization having a stake in it and a say in it, then what, you're you're still going to have some level of hierarchy because somebody's going to have to take the risk. Somebody's going to have to tender the majority of the capital. Somebody's going to have to make the decisions. But when that person's made a sacrifice for you, you know it. I had like one of the companies I ran. One of my investors came to me and said, "You need to take thirty thousand dollars out of your payroll," and I had like three guys working for me. So I took thirty thousand dollars out of my salary, and right. I didn't do it to be a martyr. But you can bet I walked in and told them what I did. Right. Right. I want you to know, none of you are getting a pay cut because I took it for everybody. And if you know that, like, do you think those guys were loyal? Right. Holy shit! Like, I could have asked them to go to war with me the next day, and they would have went. Because they're like, wow, okay, so that's leadership. Well, when you do that, it doesn't do any good. And, and you know, there's the word virtue signaling comes to mind here. And I think if you do it just to be seen doing it, that's bad. But if you do something for people and they don't know you did it, in at least some instances, I think it could be detrimental because they don't understand the sacrifice you made. So it's easy for you to be the enemy. Right. There's something to be said for. I'm going to help those around me without seeking recognition for it. That's the、yeah. genuine goodness of the soul. But if you're building an organization or you're building something like、uh, that, that people need to know、uh, all, all the things going on, all the ins and outs, so that they can make themselves good decisions on whether they're going to hate you or not. You、yeah. know, it, it is good to be transparent that way. I think it's really good to let people know this is what we are going like and share the struggles. But there's a stigma against that.、It's、like, no, I'm a、yeah. tough guy. I, you know, I've got no problems. Whatever. Yeah. But it,、uh, any of those things that create that division or that separateness, you know, like I tell my mom, my sister, my 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 wife, my friends, my family, like what I'm going through,、uh, because then they then they then they know, oh, that he's acting that way because of this. Yeah. You know, it's the same with running a corporation. It's like.、Um, You know, hard times hit. You want to be able to keep your people together, and actually, like we did this with home, Regal Home Health when we were running it. It's like we paid, we were, we paid the people the most out of all of the different home health agencies here. It reminds me of that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Like、mm-hmm. there is so much value in being a good person and genuinely caring about those around you. And it it might not hit you financially, right? He wasn't a rich man or whatever, but he was rich in life, in in love. I mean, in the opening of the movie, everybody's in their houses praying, you know, for this fellow because he's such a good man. And he was running a bank, and the the bank runs happened in the twenties or whatever. And he, you know, he interpersonally related with all of his customers and said, you know, Josie, like I know you've got this going on, like. You know, don't take everything out. Just take a little bit. Just what you need. You know, and like let's let's all we're a community. Do you want to see Frank? You know, lose his life and his house and his pension or whatever it is. And so, you know, being able to have that intimacy at scale, I think one of the good entrepreneurs who's doing that to some degree is like Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't know if you're familiar with him.、Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He's. It's about building that depth of relationship, not just a wide berth, right? Because if you have lots of fans, you know, you're Kim Kardashian or something like that, like. None of her fans are going to help her out on the side of the road if they know that tomorrow she's not Kim Kardashian. Yep. Right. Yeah. But it's all、Gary、based、Vaynerchuk, on that. Exactly. And and if Gary Vaynerchuk loses everything, you know, 
people are going to be like, whoa, you know, you've got nothing to give me, but like I'm going to because you, you gave me value and stuff. Well, how many people me. would say my side hustle that became my full-time income is because of what I learned from Gary, right? So that person right. will forever be a true fan. And if, yeah, that, that, you know, like that's what I'm saying too about losing touch with our neighborhoods because there's so many people like just in this community that I know if like they lost everything. If it was you, you lost, I don't know how you would with all your Bitcoin or whatever, but if you lost everything, and I would have been like, man, guys, Xavier Hawk is screwed. He's, he's in a bad way. I, I would have a thousand people that were willing to help you out tomorrow, but some of those same people would let the person at the end of the street lose their house because they would, not just because they don't have compassion, they would never even know until the sign went up. Right. right. They wouldn't even have the opportunity to help. Right? right? Or they would also feel like, well, you know, Frank's a good guy, but I don't have the money to bail Frank out. I can't bail everybody out. They would feel so alone in it. So when when I would be like Xavier, like, I don't know, he, he got on the hopium and he donated all his Bitcoin to Trump. Like, we need to help him now. They might be like, well, that was stupid, but, yeah, you know, we'll help out Xavier. Because they would feel immediately like, well, I know I only have to do a little bit. Because I know... Right. Other people are going to, you know, do it. Or if you ever watch a Kickstarter of something really, really a good thing on Kickstarter, like, it'll go slow, 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 slow. And as soon as it becomes obvious that they're going to meet everybody the, jumps on. Is yeah. they're going to meet their goal, they go double, triple, quadruple the number because people are like, oh, it's going to happen. So when right. people feel like it's going to happen, they don't mind throwing something at it. It's when people feel like I'm going to throw something at it. Like people don't like to throw good money after bad, right? Like so, right. if I think if I give Frank a hundred bucks, and all it's going to do is buy Frank, you know, a case of beer to drown his sorrows in and feed his family for one more day, that might be noble. But it's not going to—he's not going to keep his house because of it. So why would right. I give him a hundred bucks? But if I know his, like, he needs a mortgage payment to carry him until his next job, and that's two grand, and I got twenty people at least throwing a hundred bucks, I'll throw a hundred bucks in now. Right? Like, like, just mm -hmm. right away. And so when you know people and you can put together networks, we've done that kind of even quietly. We've had people in our community that have had, like, we had one guy, I won't say his name because I don't know if he wants it public, but basically the state of Massachusetts seized all his money because they said he owed back state taxes. And he was going to lose his business. And, like, six of us chipped in, like, you know, a few hundred dollars a piece and carried and like, here, take it. Right. Right. And we did it with crypto because it's like, seize that, bitches. Right. Like, right. like go ahead and take, because like, if you gave them cash, they might go into his bank account again. Right. And say he still owed more money. So we, we got him out of that jam just because we all knew that we could. And I think when you start knowing your neighbors again, that maybe more of that happens locally, not just online. So I know you got to go because we said that we only had a limited time when, when you got with me. So I wanted to give you a chance to give everybody outside of all this and how it plays in is however you want to do it. But what's going on with Firon? Where are we at with that? And, and what's next? So we are going to be launching the app in the app store either at the end of January or at the beginning of February. And it won't be with the full wallets and the, and the marketplace, anything like that. It'll just be a free speech zone where people can, can talk, no violence, all, you know, just constructive. What can we do in our own daily lives to make life better? Right. Um, and then probably like a few months afterwards, maybe three to four, we'll have the wallet system and everything in place. And during that time, I'll be getting the, the corporate structure in place and, and doing like a, 
uh, an offering like a Reg A plus and an ongoing one so that everybody can, uh, you know, buy a piece of the company and essentially be part owner of the company. Yeah, explain what that means because there's a lot of people you said are Reg A plus and they're like, I don't know what that means. So what does that mean? So one <laughs> of the biggest issues we had with, uh, with raising and, and making this, this corporation was like, you can only sell in investments or stocks to accredited investors. And that's like totally antithetical, antithetical to what I'm trying to do here. So building it in such a way that anybody can get involved, um, they use this, this raising structure called a Reg A+, plus, which means you can sell directly to the, the public market, but you can't raise over a certain amount, and, um, and they just raise that amount. So you know, we can get people in, and, and they can be part owner of the, of the company. Um, and what that allows us to do is create a true cooperative where you know, it's, it's, the governance system is, is such that the, the people who, quote-unquote, run it and manage the funds, like you were saying, they're really just the janitors. It's really the, the consensus voice of everybody that decides how the surplus gets, gets uh, executed on or, or spent. So like a permaculture system, we build a garden together, and we're going to farmer's market with it, um, and that's what the surplus is. And that money, we, since we built the garden together, we decide, okay, we've just made you know, 1000 bucks at the farmer's market. Uh, how do we want to spend this? Do we want to get more land? Do we want to save it and get more land? Do we want to, you know, buy more marketing, a new, you know, wrap the van or whatever? Um, that, that's kind of like the decisions that everybody gets to make together. Very cool, man. Well, dude, um, looking forward to it. When you guys, I'll work you in, unlike most people that have to fill out a form and wait. So like when, 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 when this is ready to launch, Get with me and Sweet. come back on the air, and we'll kind of go line by line through what it does at that point and where it's headed. Because I think, oh, that's, dude, that'd be amazing. That that'd be something I think the audience would really like to uh, to know more about. And again, I appreciate you uh, kind of uh, let me call an audible and joining me today because I think it was more interesting than me just talking about the subject. We certainly covered parts of it I would have never covered on my own. So I really appreciate that, Xavier. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, Jack, especially here at TSP. The community is so amazing, and like. If anybody wants to become uh, part of Fire On Now, we're, we're actually like all the topics and channels and things that we're going to have in there. The community right now in the Telegram chat is deciding those. So I've, I've put down a list and everybody's throwing uh, new suggestions at me. They're really great. I'm adding some of those in. And then, you know, the training that people will get, like we're, we're really crowdsourcing the information and everybody's super active in there. And that's uh, t.me slash Fire On, P-H-I-R-E-O-N. I will make sure that that is in our show notes as well today, Xavier, so people can check cool. it out. And thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jack. You're the best. Well, that was a great discussion with Xavier. Uh, again, guys, I really think you want to check out what he's doing with Phyron. That's uh, P-H-I-R-E-O-N is the company. I have links to his website and his Telegram group in the show notes today. Again, I also have a link to the video that I put on Odyssey today of Brad Lancaster and how he transformed his neighborhood in Tucson. I cannot endorse that highly enough. I mean, it is a level of anarcho-permaculture badassery that you have to see to appreciate. I hope we made you think today, and um, I hope because thinking is where we, we solve problems. Right, thinking is where we start to ask ourselves, how do we instead of why instead of saying why we can't, and when we start saying how do we, we acknowledge that we may not already have the answer, that there may not already be a solution in play, or maybe the, the solution that's in play is not the best one, and then we start challenging ourselves to find better ones. So if anything that we said today gave you an idea, don't write me and say, hey, I'm going to do this. Go do it. Go do it. And when you get doing it, let me know you're doing it. <laughs> and then I'll have something to look at. Uh, and I, the reason I say that is because those are always the ones that succeed. 
the people that say, hey, Jack, look what I'm doing. They're the ones that always say, the people that tell me what they're going to do, they seldom, if ever, do it. It's a funny thing. I, I don't know what the dynamic is there, because generally if I say I'm going to do something, I'm probably going to do it. But in my experience, when people get inspired by a, a, a podcast, they either do or they say they're going to do, but they seldom do both. Anyway, with that, um, let's go ahead and remind you guys you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, today's item of the day is a new one. I haven't had this one around before. I've mentioned it on a couple shows, but I've never run it as an item of the day. Is the General Hydroponics Combo Fertilizer Kit. It's made up of three parts. They're Flora Grow, G-R-O, Flora Micro, M-I-C-R-O, and Flora Bloom, Bloom. And uh, it's a three-part kit. You can buy it by the gallon or the quart. And I'm going to say straight out of the gate, like if you want to do just straight hydro, I actually prefer Master Blend for hydroponics because it's so economical and it does everything you need. Okay. However, this is easier to mix. And I originally found it back when, because another one I endorse is Texas Tomato Food. Uh, but Master Blend and Texas Tomato Food were just not available in the spring because everybody and their mother got into growing their own food and all of it sold out. So I found this and I've tried it and I use it and it works. It costs a little bit more money, but it's really easy to mix. You have no problems mixing it. You've got to follow the instructions, though, because if you're doing a formula where you're using all three, the grow goes in first and then the micro and then the bloom or it's the other way around, but it's, the grow goes first. And the reason is if you mix... It, it doesn't have to be mixed like super perfectly. It just has to go into the water and kind of be mixed up, and then the next one goes in, mix up, and then the next one goes in, mix up. The reason you got to do that is what you might think is, well, I'll just take a measuring cup, and if I need a quarter cup of each or whatever it ends up being, a half a cup and two quarter cups, I'll just pour it all together and then dump it all in mass. If you put it together before it's in the water diluted, some of the nutrients and minerals can bind together and form new compounds and become unavailable to the plants. So you want to mix each one one at a time into your water. But since it's a liquid, it's really easy to mix. If you're doing small-scale, seed-starting only, indoor stuff, this might really be an easier way to go for you because it's easier to mix. It costs a little more, but if you can, if you're doing small crab key systems, seed-starting crab key systems, etc., all inside, really easy, so you get convenience. If you're doing larger systems, I would tell you that it gets so expensive, I consider it cost prohibitive. So you need to look at the, the volumes and requirements and what you're trying to do yourself. But if you want something easy that will work really, really good, you want to try this. My other thing is, it's a three-part kit, but you can buy it individually. This is good because you use mostly the grow and then some amount of micro or bloom, depending on what you're doing. So the bloom has extra P and K phosphorus and potassium to encourage blooming. The micro is exactly what it sounds like. It's micro uh, nutrients. So it's the things other than NPK. And then the grow is like a general purpose fertilizer. If all you're doing is growing lettuce to like, you know, small size to mid-size lettuce to baby lettuce or doing like, you know, spinach like that or whatever, or just starting plants that are going to be transplanted where you're growing them up to like the size they would be in a six-pack before you transplant them, you only need the grow. You only need the grow, and it will work just fine used as directed. So it's up to you. But the reason I brought it today is it's on sale. All of it's on sale today. It's on all the different ones are marked down different rates, but the quarts, the gallons, and the individuals are all marked down. So I thought it would be a good day to bring it to you. And I just want to encourage you guys, even if you're not going to grow with hydro, because hydro is not for everybody. It really isn't as a growing system. It is 
in my experience over the last year, the easiest way to take care of your starting your plants. And the way to get those, you know, put the lights down low, give them lots of light, and you get robust, mean little stiff plants, man. And that's what you want to be putting out. So this is the time to get your seed starting systems in place. I see tons of you guys getting stuff to do that with. This is the time. If you live, like where my grandfather lived in Pennsylvania, pretty far north compared to here, he would start his peppers and tomatoes like clockwork the day after Valentine's Day. Right, that's not that far out. And if you live further south, you move that date back. So you count back. But the beauty of doing it with hydro is I think what you'll find out is if you need six weeks to get your pepper plants ready to go out with conventional, you probably need four with hydro. So I actually last year started a little too early. So just kind of factor that in. The beauty is since it's so quick, you can always make more really, really fast. So with that, let me also remind you you can become a member of the MSB. It's $50 bucks a year, $0.18.3 cents an episode to support the show and get a bunch of discounts and use them, and it more than pays for itself. And I do take cryptocurrency as well for that if you don't want to pay with fiat dollars. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today, we are in Highwaymen Week, and uh, we have a song by them that when I tell you the name of the song, some of you are going to be like, oh, that's a great song. And some of you are going to be like, I've never heard that song before. And I would bet more than half of the people that never – that think they've never heard this song, as soon as they hear it, they're going to be like, oh, that song. Um, when you hear Two Stories Wide, though, you would tend to think of like two-story house. And I'm sure they're playing on that entendre, right? Like a two-story house, but two stories wide. What this is actually about is, is how life works as a whole. And how in every situation in life, there's your side and my side. And really, it's much bigger than two. Our world is made up of billions of people, and that means we have billions of worlds, because every person perceives their world a little bit differently than even the person right next to them. But on a more level of understanding, when you're trying to deal with another person, which was a lot of the interpersonal ethic that we talked about today, everybody has two stories, two ways that they view things. And so it talks about how deep life is. But life is two stories wide. In every situation, there's at least two stories. And it's important that we try to understand the viewpoint of the other party in these discussions. And if we do just a little bit of that, we can make things just a little bit better. And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Come out of the dark. Don't hide in the night. Come out in the sunshine It will be alright Life's too long to worry And it's too short to cry And it's too deep to measure And it's too slow as There's your sign Bleed. Life's too long to worry. 